Father, we're so often reminded as we come to this time of the year of the great sacrifice that ultimately was paid not only on the cross, but in the very God of gods, uh, putting himself into human flesh and uh, taking on the limitations that uh, that required. And Father, it's impossible for us to even really grasp that in any way, but we're so grateful for what you did and for the path that Christ was willing to follow for those 35 or so years that led ultimately to the cross and then to the triumphal resurrection. And Father, it's in the joy of that resurrection that we live today, knowing that we too will be raised one day to be in glory with you. And we're so grateful for the moments that we have now here on, in this life to catch a little glimpse of that glory and to hear the wonderful Christmas, an Christmas anthems and to participate with one another in the joy of, of the great giving that you did and which we reflect in a small way. Help us, Father, to, as we're admonished in Romans, to give our bodies as a living sacrifice to you each day, recognizing that this is the minimum that we can do in service to you. Now, Father, we ask for your special blessing upon this class time, your presence with us as we study the word, and then also during the service as the word is proclaimed. In Christ's name, amen. Genesis chapter 34. This isn't exactly a Christmas story, but it is part of the Word of God, and all of that is uh, leading up to the great moment of the new birth, the birth of Christ, and then our new birth. I'd like to uh, read again the first few verses, and what I will do is read verses 1 through 10 uh, to begin with this morning. We covered verses 1 through 4 last week. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he took her and lay with her by force. And he was deeply attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this young girl for a wife. Now Jacob heard that he, that is, of course, Shechem, had defiled Dinah his daughter. But his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob kept silent until they came in. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. Now the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard, when they heard it. And the men were grieved, and they were very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing ought not to be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him in marriage. And intermarry with us. Give, us your daughter, give your daughters to us, and take our daughters for yourselves. Thus you, you shall live with us, and the land shall be open before you. Live and trade in it, and acquire property in it. As we noted last week, Jacob, for reasons that are not explained in the scripture, chose to settle for a period of time uh, near the town of Shechem in central Palestine. And we talked a little bit about the lay of the land there and, and how that is a, a site which uh, today there is a, an Arab city located uh, close to where Shechem was built. And uh, that it was the site where in John chapter 4, Jesus... <coughs> met with the woman at the well and gave us that uh, uh, beautiful little picture in there of who God really is and that uh, we who worship him must do so in spirit as well as in truth. And he was on his way down to see his family. At least that was seemingly the direction which he was headed. He bought a piece of land here uh, at Shechem and we discover, of course, later on that that's the piece of land where his son Joseph would later be buried. The choice to live here uh, no way reflects any statement or any indication that he sought God's direction in this. 
And the result of it is, of course, seen at least in part in these verses that we've read this morning. And as you go through the later part of the chapter, you see the full outworking of this, um, of this tragedy. Dinah, being probably middle teens in age, was rather lonesome, apparently, for young women her age to have communion with. And so she went to the city of Shechem, the town of Shechem probably we would consider it today, to uh, meet with some of the gals and, and, of course, have fellowship with them. And in the process, uh, probably, as I mentioned to you last time, there was a little bit of desire to uh, be admired by the young men of the land too. Well, as we read through this passage, we discover that she was too much admired by the son of the prince of the land, and uh, he raped her on that day. I think Dinah, Dinah came home as a result of that, a, an emotional basket case. Uh, she had uh, known the, the safety uh, sanctuary of, of her life there, living amongst her brothers and with her father, and even though they'd had some rather tense moments when uh, Laban showed up on the scene and then with the encounter with Esau, she had never faced violence like this before in her life. And so this was, uh, of course, very shattering to her as a person to experience this that day. I think no matter what Shechem did or attempted to say to her to try to woo her, uh, the violence that he had perpetrated upon her had shaken her to the very core of her being. I think it's very important for us not to think of people who lived long ago in another society as being different in their emotional makeup than we are today. And as the tragedy would strike us, so it struck them. In fact, probably their society was less uh, inured to this uh, kind of violence than we are today because we read about it all the time and it's, it's depicted for us on television, either in make-believe or in reality. And our whole society, as you know, is becoming uh, totally, uh, not our whole society, but many people are becoming immune to the tragedy of, of this kind of violence. I think that the word came to Jacob through Leah. It's very probable that uh, Dinah came home. She probably told what happened to her, to her mother, and then her mother Leah went and informed Jacob of this because obviously it was a shame on the name of the family. So before Hamer ever came to, to make request of Jacob that Dinah might be given to his son, Jacob knew what had transpired. He was fully aware of what had happened. But Jacob made no move to deal with the situation himself. It was as if he had not heard. He let, did not allow Hamer in any way to know that he knew. What he did instead was to send word to his older sons. Now his older sons, were told, were out in the field. They were out watching the flocks. And uh, probably the only son left in the camp was Joseph, the, the youngest, who was very small yet at this time, younger than Dinah. Uh, all the others were out in the field, and, and certainly the manpower of the family was out there too. That is all the, not all, but many of the servants, particularly the male servants, were out there taking care of the flocks. Now remember, we're talking about huge flocks, flocks that numbered in the thousands of animals. Therefore, it required a great deal of uh, manpower to keep track of these animals and to lead them to proper pasturage. And so Jacob sent word to his sons to return as soon as possible. And I believe when he sent the word that he did not tell them why at that moment. He probably just sent an urgent message out, please come back, I need you right away. And of course they would come with all kinds of wondering in their head as to what the problem was for which they were being recalled. By the time they got home, Hamor had arrived and he had, of course, quote, innocently, uh, he wasn't innocent in any way, but he pretended innocence, began to talk with Jacob about his son's love for Jacob's daughter and the desire of his son to have her in marriage. I think that as this conversation was taking place, and you have to kind of picture this in the typical Near Eastern style, it was a, it was a kind of a 
semi-formal meeting. Certainly, they had uh, been placed uh, in, in a particular arrangement facing each other, and, and the proper spread on the ground had been put out, and, and food was being served to this guest that had come to the camp. Uh, it was in the midst of this, apparently, that the sons arrived, and Jacob, knowing or hearing or seeing, whether he was inside a tent or outside a tent, we're not told here, as the sons arrived, I think he excused himself uh, from Hamer's presence and went to meet with his sons so that he could inform them as to the reason that he called them back. All of Dinah's brothers were older than she, save Joseph. Joseph was the only one younger. So we're talking about brothers, and of course half-brothers. Six of them are her brothers, and the other four are half-brothers, the sons of the two concubines. So they're all, at least in their late teens, and on into their 20s. So they're in the fire of their youth as they come back to hear about this tragedy. They are all old enough to understand, at least, if maybe not fully, but certainly sufficiently, the seriousness of the calamity that has befallen their sister. They're not just going to pass this off. We have to also recognize that in that society, in that day, young men and young women grew up a whole lot faster than they do today. Oh, we talk today about young people just growing up so fast. They're not growing up fast. They're just being exposed to, to, to things that children ought not to be exposed to in many ways. That's not growing up because we look at our society and we see the tragedy. We're not, we're not talking about maturity being applied to all of this here. But we're talking about young people in, in that day who knew how to work by the time they could barely, uh, you know, make it to first grade in what we would call today our society. And, and, and so we're talking about young men who already had 10, 15 years of work experience behind them. They already had responsibility on their shoulders. And so they come back and they hear of what has happened to their sister. Now... I don't care what age we're talking about, whether it be the you know, ancient history, medieval history, or modern history. Young men, when they're in their late teens and in their 20s, are pretty commonly, uh, they react very similarly in many situations. It's a time when the vigor of youth is there and somewhat the rashness of a willingness to act before thinking uh, takes place. Emotion sometimes overpowers reason. And I'm not saying that that's wrong. I'm just saying that that's normally the situation. The older we get, the more likely we are to stop and think about something before we act. And maybe that's good, and maybe it's not sometimes. But we're looking at uh, young men who are not going to take this lightly as they hear from their father what happened. So Jacob filled them in. The passage tells us how these young men reacted. It says, first of all, that they were grieved. The Hebrew word here, the Hebrew verb that's applied here, uh, means within this context to be mentally and emotionally distressed to the point of reaction. In other words, it's not a passive grieving. Oh, that's so terrible, I'm really sorry. But to the point where there's, there, a reaction is being generated within, within them to this situation. And then the passage goes on to tell us what that reaction was. It says they became very angry. Now what's interesting here is that the Hebrew verb used to describe the word air, that's translated angry here is a word that means heat, fire, burning. So as the word came to these young men, these young men are not just angry, they are steamed about this situation, to put it in the modern vernacular. And what's interesting is that this anger reflects a couple of truths, I think, that are significant here. First of all, they care about their sister. She is important to them. <laughs> I don't think they're just reacting because some kind of dishonor has happened to the family name, although that is part of it. I think they really care for their sister. Remember now, she is the only one that is listed as being a sister, as being a girl born to Jacob. But there are passages, including the one that we're looking at here, which tells us that there were more. 
because Hamor says, and let your daughters, plural, marry with our sons and, and your sons marry with our daughters. And there are other passages which tell us that Jacob had sons and daughters, plural. So there were other girls born to Jacob besides Dinah, but she is the only one that is mentioned by name. Apparently, she was the first, even though, you know, you think about this biologically, and, and it doesn't seem like it, it should have been that way. I mean, how do you have 10 boys born before you have one girl? I mean, the typical average is one for one, but we all know that in every family it doesn't work out that way. Uh, we know in our family it didn't work out that way. <laughs> we had four daughters and, and no sons. But, uh, and uh, it's interesting, I was at a uh, conference years ago in another country, and uh, one of the professors there, he had, had, he had seven daughters. And he said by that time they gave up trying to have a son because uh, it was getting out of hand. <laughs> but <laughs> that's basically what he said. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, the situation uh, would seem to indicate there, that there should have been other daughters born in between some of those sons, but the scripture does not say so. So what we assume is that Dinah was the oldest of the girls. She had sisters, but they were much younger. And so she was the baby sister to these boys for quite a while, apparently. And so they had a special care for her. And of course, it was a challenge to the name of Israel that this should happen to their sister. And then secondly, I think it also expresses the truth that Jacob and, and certainly God himself had instilled within these boys a sense of morality and a sense of honor. And so that they viewed Shechem's action as heinously unacceptable. And they didn't just look upon it as, as, you know, a problem that she had on her way, you know, to, to town one day. But as a real tragedy that has come into her life and into the life of the family. You know, it is really, I think, significant that we consider the fact that in our society today, there seems to be very little uh, ongoing teaching concerning morality and honor and things of that nature. We're suffering from a society in which whatever you do is supposedly acceptable. There's an article that is, just came out in the newest Christianity Today where there's a little cartoon. It shows, uh, you know, they have a little sign that says, this is the right way and this is the wrong way. Those two little signs have been thrown in the trash bucket. And instead, there's a, a, a line with an arrow on each end. And it says, basically, you choose, you know, you choose. And whatever you choose is right, as long as it's, it's fitting with the way you feel. You know. Unless something happens soon, we probably will lose uh, a whole generation of uh, young people because they will not know right from wrong. Or that there even is such a thing as right or wrong, just however you feel about it. Well, these boys knew what was right and they knew what was wrong. And they knew that what Shechem had done was very wrong. In fact, we're told in this passage that they viewed Shechem's act as bringing disgrace in Israel. It says, a disgraceful thing in Israel. Now, what's interesting is that the word which is translated disgraceful is the Hebrew nebelah. And that particular word means villainous immorality. Put those two words together, you know. Villainous immorality. We're talking about a situation that implies total disregard for any moral or spiritual standards. The root word from which this uh, term comes is, is the word nabal, which means fool, and implies an abject fool. And of course, we know later on, don't we, of the story of David, and Abigail and her husband, who, who was a total fool. I mean, if there's any passage in Scripture which talks about a total fool, <laughs> that one does. In fact, he's even called that. That's his name, fool, at least in the passage. The boys came to join the little conflab there with Hamer. So here's Hamer sitting down. He probably rises to greet the sons as they come, and they, they kind of probably all 
sit in a semicircle facing Hamor. <laughs> so here's this guy you know, with Jacob opposite him and ten boys ranging out around. And he sees in the eyes of these boys anger. They have been informed now uh, as what has happened. And uh, he, has, he has sensed that this whole family knows what his son has done, whether he's been told outrightly or not, the scripture doesn't say. And so his reaction is to attempt to be solicitous here, overly solicitous in this situation, to emphasize Shechem's great love for Dinah. You know, the implication is, yeah, he sh probably shouldn't have done that. At least you seem to indicate that by your anger. But just remember this. He really loves her. His soul longs for her. Hamor was implying that Shechem was so enamored of Dinah that he just couldn't help himself. And therefore he did what he did. Please give Dinah to my son. I mean, this man is all but pleading on bended knee that Jacob and the sons be willing to give their daughter, sister, to Shechem in marriage. Whether it was that it seemed like he wasn't getting through or not, he broadened the proposal out beyond just uh, standing in for his son. He goes on to imply that really what happened can, can work out for the good of both the Israelites and the Shechemites. Just think about it. We will be friends. You will be our friend. We'll be your friend. And the whole territory will be yours. You can live here. You can put your flocks anywhere you want. You can have land here. We'll just be one big happy family. That's what he's implying here. You can acquire land. You can settle down for good. You can be prosperous. I mean, how do you tell a man who's got so many animals that you can hardly find you know, hills without them on it that he will be prosperous? You know, I mean, he's already a wealthy man, and Hamor knew that. And we find a little bit later in the passage that he clearly understood this. Uh, and that was part of the whole deal here. But he felt that maybe the prospect uh, of Jacob and his family being able to have some land. I mean, after all, they've been a nomadic people for a while. And, and certainly nomads would like to settle down, would like to have some land someplace, right? Some place to call home. And so maybe this would attract them. Verses 11 and 12. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, this is reminding you again that the name of the city and the name of the villain in this story are the same. And apparently the son was named for the city. And reminding you again that the name of the city meant Ridge because of its particular location. So here's his, Hamor's son, Ridge. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, if I find favor in your sight, then I will give whatever you say to me. Ask me ever so much bridal payment and gift, and I will give according as you say to me, but give me the girl in marriage. I mean, this guy's desperate. I think that it seemed to him, uh, you know, that he, he was coming to find out how negotiations were coming along. Now, he might have been there from the beginning with his father, but the scripture does not say so. He just suddenly is on the scene. Now, whether that means he was just quiet before because it was his father who was interceding or he just simply comes up now to uh, see how the negotiations were coming along and to kind of reinforce what his father was attempting to do. Whatever the case was, he perceived that there was resistance here, that his father wasn't finding a great open-armed welcoming committee uh, in this camp as he came to make a deal. And so Shechem says, okay, I'll make a rash offer. Now, I'm sure he didn't think in his own mind this being a rash offer, but he says, give, ask what you want. Be it ever so great. Ask what you want, and I will give it to you. Only let me have your daughter. And this is how important this seems uh, to him. So he's, he's offering a bride price with no limits on it. Now, you could think about that for a moment, 
And, and you know, in our society, we could say, whoa, the guy's handed him a blank, signed blank check. Well, obviously, he knew as well as they knew that uh, a signed blank check is only good to the limits of the bank account, right? There, there was limit to the wealth and, and the ability of uh, Hamor and Shechem to provide because it was a small town. It was a small city-state. We're not talking about a great kingdom here. Uh, so he's kind of uh, opening himself up to what follows, but at the same time with understood limits. Now, the purpose of the offer, why, does he, why doesn't he just say, look, um, I'll give you 500 acres over here, or I'll give you 1,000 head of sheep. They need another 1,000 head of sheep, of course, like they needed nothing else. Uh, the, the situation, I think, is such that uh, what he's trying to do is tempt Jacob and his sons to the point that they will forget what has happened to their daughter, their sister, and will just visualize the great profits that they might reap from this whole situation. It's, it's this, this whole attempt that he's making is premised upon the commonly held belief that you and I still hear today that every man has his price. That no one is beyond being tempted to surrender something precious for a certain price, even if it be his honor. But Shechem is implying here, and the brothers don't fail to catch it, that the honor of Dinah and that the honor of their family name could be bought. And what this does to these brothers who are not living in poverty, they have all they need. What this does is just steam them more that this guy is implying that the honor of our daughter and the honor of our family name can be bought. This simply adds fuel to the fire. It does not cool things down as Shechem had hoped. And of course, this is true, as we well know. Honor cannot be bought. Honor must be earned. You can see it so, so many times repeated in history where people sought to buy a place of honor. I mean, there was a time when the emperorship of the Roman Empire was auctioned and people bid for the position of emperor of the Roman Empire in the third century. It was a foolish thing to make an offer, though, because in that period of time of 50 years, there were 26 emperors. Not a single one of them died of natural causes. Honor must be earned, and Shechem was not off to a good start in earning honor amongst the Israelites. <coughs> What Shechem is doing here is treating Dinah as if she were a negotiable commodity. You've got this for sale? I'll offer you this for it. Not enough? I'll offer you more. I mean, you know, it's, it's as if, I mean, it's true. In the society of that day, it wasn't like Hollywood deal, you know. Here's the gal and here's the guy and they fall in love and they get married and they live happily ever after, irrespective of parents and wealth and all the rest of the thing or social status. But those other things did play a role. And it was Jacob's right to give his daughter to whom he chose in marriage. But we're talking about, this guy's acting like it's an auction. And uh, Jacob and his family do not take that lightly. Now, what is interesting is that had he confessed his sin, had he come and said, I am so sorry that I did this, it was vile, it was wrong, had he been willing to ask forgiveness, there might have been a different end to this story. It could have been, and, and probably rightly would have been, that Jacob and his family would have said, okay, we accept your apology, uh, but we're moving away and we're taking Dinah with us. But that isn't how the story ends, because Shechem was no way going to make such an apology. Shechem was blind. He was absolutely blind, not only spiritually, but morally and emotionally 
to the tragedy that he had perpetrated here. To him, morality and honor meant nothing, at least as the Israelis, Israelites thought of it. There was no way that Jacob and his brothers, I mean, and his sons, could turn their sister, his daughter, over to this vile man. No way that they could do that. So anything that happens beyond this point is a ruse in, in the form of negotiations. Well, let's look at what happens. Verse 13. But Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamor with deceit and spoke to them because he had defiled Dinah their sister. And they said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we consent to you, if you will become like us, in that every male of you be circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters for ourselves, and we will live with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us to be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and go. Right. Now notice what it says there. It is not Jacob who responds alone to Hamor. It is his sons. It was his sons. Why did Jacob allow his sons to speak for him? At least that's what appears to be true in this passage. Why does he do that? Well, I think one possibility is that he didn't want Hamor and Shechem to think that they were just negotiating with an old man who could be pushed around, but that they were negotiating with young, strong men who were virile youth and who could back up whatever agreement is made with force if necessary. Now, who is assuming leadership here? Who comes up with the plan? Who is the spokesman for all of this here? Well, we're not told. But certainly we must assume that probably the leadership in all of this has fallen to the four older sons, all of whom were sons of Leah, oldest, the oldest brothers of Dinah. And these, of course, were Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. These were the four older brothers, the oldest sons of Jacob. And so probably they are the ones who are assuming leadership here. I think Leah's younger sons, Issachar and Zebulon, are there, as well, as I mentioned before, as the four sons of the two concubines, two of each concubine. I, I think the ten boys were there. But I think the four initiated and took the leadership here and basically took the, the, the uh, central spokesmanship away from their father. What are the other boys doing? I think they're standing around helping to form this <clears throat> intimidating crowd so that the two will recognize the spokesman is right and we agree with him and you better pay attention. Now, between verses 12 and 13, I think we have to recognize... Well, let me read it again. Verse 12. This is Shechem. He says, Ask me ever so much bridal payment and gift, and I will give according as you say to me, but give me the girl in marriage. Then notice it says, But Jacob's sons answered Shechem, and they come up with this plan. Well, it's quite obvious that it wasn't an instant reaction. I think it's, you know, time out. You've got your proposal in. We're going to go over here in the corner someplace where you can't hear us. They wouldn't say that to him, but we're going to go another place. We're going to talk about what our answer should be. Well, we'll talk about what the bride price should be. And I think Jacob and his ten sons left the scene, went someplace where they would not be overheard, and there they discussed what would be the single answer presented. There's no way that they could have just popped, responded right back to him with what we discover uh, is explained here in, in this particular passage. And so, 
they hatch this plan. Now, who is the, who is the primary hatcher here? <laughs> who, who is the one who came up with the idea in the first place? Well, we're not told. And then who was the spokesman who related it to Hamor and Shechem? We're not told that either. But because of the events which transpire later in the passage, which we won't get there until January 9th, in the other building over there, I think it's reasonable to assume that probably either Simeon or Levi or both together uh, have assumed the leadership. They are the ones that have come up with the plan and, and more or less shared it and gotten agreement from the others and are therefore the ones who explain it to uh, Shechem and Hamor. Uh, we won't get a chance to talk about it today, but uh, I'll mention to you why a little later on, I don't think it was either Reuben or Judah. Uh, there are some, uh, some scriptural implications, I think, that uh, probably make it fall into Simeon or Levi's lap. Now, was Jacob fully aware of the treachery that his sons were planning? I mean, did they discuss everything down to the nth detail? I don't think so. I think just a kind of a framework was outlined and that the details would fall in later. And I think that Jacob, had he been asked to come up with the solution or had his sons allowed him to come up with the solution, it would have been a different one. I think Jacob would have planned a peaceful solution. I think Jacob would have uh, said, look, we've got this big problem. I think the best way to deal with it is for us just to move away to avoid hostilities with this people, move on down our way. I was wrong. We shouldn't have stayed here this long. Let's, let's move on. Whether he admitted he was wrong in staying there, uh, who knows. But he allowed his sons to carry him along with this. Was it because deep down inside Jacob, there was a desire for revenge too? Well, we don't know. We can only uh, speculate on those things. But whatever was the case... I mean, think about his father. What did Jacob's father do, Isaac? Every time he faced this kind of a problem, even though he never faced a problem quite this serious, what did he do? He moved. Rather than get into conflict with the local people, he moved. And therefore, he was known as a peacemaker. Now, the scripture in no way implies he was a coward. He simply moved because it was better to move than to have conflict and create an odious name for yourself amongst the people. And so it's very possible that Jacob would have followed the example of his father. Whatever the case, he was carried along with the plan. His response later on in verse 30, when the two sons, Simeon and Levi, have carried out their dastardly deed, seems to indicate that he either went along with the plan very reluctantly or was not apprised of what was to be the ultimate result of the plan. Well, verse 13 of this passage makes it very clear that Jacob's sons had an ulterior motive in the presentation that they made from the very beginning. Because as you read that verse, it says, but Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamor with deceit. In other words, from the very moment they came back from their little conflab and faced Hamor and Shechem, they knew in their minds and in their hearts that what they were saying was not what they intended to do. They were flat out lying to Shechem and to Hamor. Now, they may not have known exactly how it was going to work out in the end either. I'm sure all ten didn't know that two of them were was going to go later on, were going to go down and butcher the whole city. They probably hadn't gotten that far yet in their thinking. But they knew that what they were saying was not what they intended to do ultimately. They had no intention whatever of turning Dinah over to Shechem. The only thing on the minds of these young men was revenge. Revenge was burning in their minds and in their hearts. Now, revenge is a fleshly desire, not a godly desire. It does not matter how terrible the crime. The scripture in no way authorizes us as individuals to avenge sin. 
In medieval Europe, the church authorized groups of men to avenge what they considered to be evil, and crusades were launched. Some of the crusades attacked Jewish communities within the cities of Europe. These were the killers of Christ, you know. Others traveled across the continent and across the Mediterranean to the eastern Mediterranean where across Europe and across the eastern, to the eastern Mediterranean to attack the infidel. The, the Muslim Arab and the Turk who had uh, taken over the Holy Land and, and possessed the, the place where Christ was born and, the, and where Christ was crucified. How terrible. And the way to deal with them was to slaughter them. And even within Europe itself, crusades were launched against what were believed to be heretics within Europe. Innocent III, considered to be the most powerful pope, at least temporally speaking, in the history of the papacy, authorized a crusade in 1208 against southern France where Knights of the Cross would kill the heretics known as the Albigenses, who were headquartered there in southern France around Toulouse. And, and people were butchered by the thousands in the name of Christ. I kill thee. Seems a little incongruous with our reading of Scripture and with our knowledge of who God is. Those crusades formed a terrible blot on the history of the church and today are still a stumbling block to many Muslims as they think about the Christian gospel being preached to them. They think of the crusaders and what happened. Even though it was hundreds of years ago, it still stands in many people's mind as a stumbling block. You see, only God can take revenge with right motives because only God is perfectly holy, righteous, and just. We are not. When we let our anger get out of hand, we give a foothold to the devil. The scripture clearly teaches us that. Let me just read a couple of verses from Ephesians that you're certainly familiar with that says that in so many words. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Be angry, but don't sin. And do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. See, anger that is out of bounds gives the evil one foothold into our lives to turn what might have started out as righteous indignation into a personal crusade for self-satisfying reasons. When something vile happens to God's people, our weapon of vengeance is prayer. We pray, and God carries out the vengeance. We are to submit to God and allow Him to be our avenger. I'm not saying by this that we as Christians do nothing, we sit on our hands. But we should not do anything violent. We should not fight fire with fire, as the world says. We don't go out and, and launch a crusade against those who are doing uh, detrimental things to our society and, and to the church. We read a couple of passages in Scripture that I think underline this from Deuteronomy chapter 32. A part of the Song of Moses, and certainly anybody had seen a lot of injustice, it was Moses. And certainly the Israelites, in their attempt to move from Egypt and occupy the Holy Land, had seen lots of injustice along the way. Deuteronomy 32, 35. Vengeance is mine, and retribution. In due time their foot will slip. For the day of their calamity is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. For the Lord will vindicate his people, and will have compassion on his servants, when he sees that their strength is gone, and there is none remaining bond or free. He will say, Where are their gods, the rock in which they sought refuge? Who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their libation? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your hiding place. 
See now that I, I am he, and there is no God beside me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal. There is no one who can deliver from my hand. Indeed, I lift up my hand to heaven and say as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on justice, I will render vengeance on my adversaries. I will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh. With the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired leaders of the enemy, Rejoice, O nations, with thy people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. I think sometimes we are not quick enough to let God be God and realize he is sovereign. And there's nothing that we can do that matters outside of his strength. And our great weapon is to pray. Let me also read from Nahum, the first few verses in the book of Nahum, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Nahum chapter 1. The oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. He reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. <clears throat> that verse is really an important verse for us to remember because you and I are quick to anger. In our quickness to anger, sometimes we forget justice, we forget mercy, we forget the characteristics of God. God is slow to anger and great in power, but he will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. In whirlwind and in storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. The Lord is good a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness, and we could even say outer darkness. I think it's important for us to remember when the scripture says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, that is a categorical statement. He's not saying except in this situation, except in that one, and except in another situation. God has only authorized one human agency to take vengeance for him, and that is the government. We may laugh. But remember the words of Paul in Romans 13. Fam uh, familiar words to us. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they, have, and they who oppose, have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Now governments can fail. Governments can be totally corrupt. Governments can be as the government was of Nazi Germany and be full of injustice and unrighteousness. But does that mean that God has, has somehow been superseded? I don't think so. What happened to Nazi Germany? See, God is the, is the ultimate authority or the author of all authority. And when governments do not follow in the plan that he has set, <clears throat> he changes them, as we have seen happen so many times this century. I'd like to just end up with this little uh, reference that you are familiar with. Most of you are familiar with Corrie ten Boom. 
And you know that uh, this lady with her family chose to violate the law, an unjust law, by taking Jews into their home and protecting them there in the city of Harlem. In the process of violating that law, however, the Ten Boom family took no lives. They killed no one. They ultimately ended up in prison. And Corey saw her, her sister Betsy die in Ravensbrook. After the war, she tells, as you certainly have heard probably many times, of being in a service where one of the guards that was at Ravensbrook was there, and she recognized him, and she knew that he was one of those who contributed to the death of, his, of her sister. And inside her was hatred and vengeance and the desire to have vengeance on this, this perpetrator of evil. But God had to work in her life to the point where she could have forgiveness and compassion upon this man. Because, you see, this man was a man for whom Christ died, just as was, just as her sister and herself. God loved this Nazi guard as much as he loved Corey. And she had to recognize that and to realize that uh, we, in our reaction, although it may be to something that seems clearly wrong, and therefore why shouldn't we perform the act of vengeance, that we can step into God's place, which is not what he's asked us to do. And in so doing, we can become sinners in the process. The Inquisition was authorized by the church to get rid of heretics who are considered to be sinners in the midst of the church. And part of the reason for the existence of the Inquisition was the misinterpretation of passages like this one that we're studying in the Old Testament, which gave excuse for an organization like the Inquisition to exist, to root out heretics with violence and death in the name of Christ, the Prince of Peace. It seems incongruous to us but it's very, very natural human reaction to the situation. We need to saturate ourselves with God's attitude and God's word that we might react in God's way and let prayer be our weapon of vengeance against evil. Well, I would say next week, except it will be three weeks from today, we'll continue on and we'll see what these... Uh, brothers did to carry out their plan.